0: homes and so i think people are starting to get ready to maybe put their their cash into play again and start buying real estate again which is something you weren't hearing from consumers a month ago so so i think that that is a positive sign
1: ben thanks very much sadly we've
2: run out of time that's ben carinder who's managing director of the china market research group up in shanghai
0: you're listening to money talk on rthk radio three uh, Asian stocks are sliding deep into the red this morning. The ASX 200 in Australia down almost 2%. Nikkei 225 in
2: Japan down 2.4%. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea, that's off 2.2%. And futures markets pointing to a loss of about 250 points for the Hang, S- the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned for Back Chat after the news. Kim Gordon, Mike Rouse with you this morning. Uh, The
3: weather forecast cloudy with a few showers, isolated thunderstorms, very hot again, maximum temperature about 33 degrees. That very hot weather warning is in force. 29 degrees right now, 84% relative humidity. 8.31, 8.31, here's Andrew
1: Shorosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. Health officials have reported 9,708 new COVID infections, of which 213 were imported. That's a jump of more than 1,200 cases from Saturday's total. Dr. Chuang Shuk-Kwan from the Centre for Health Protection says the more transmissible Omicron subvariants, BA.4 and BA.5, account for about 50% of recent cases.
4: The figure of the confirmed cases is still increasing in an increasing trend with recent more faster rate, possibly due to the increasing proportion of B8.5 variant, Omicron variant. So the numbers exist 10,000 is as expected in the coming days.
1: Officials say 2,453 patients are being treated in hospital with 13 of them in intensive care. 10 more patients with COVID-19 have died. A survey by the Hong Kong Lutheran Social Service shows the COVID pandemic has made young people less willing to socialize. And the group expressed concern they may become more socially withdrawn. The services, children and youth service division interviewed a thousand secondary school students in June with an online poll. About two thirds of the respondents said they didn't want to socialize as much because of COVID restrictions. And they'll be anxious about meeting people without their masks on in the future. Louis Chu was in charge of the survey.
0: Wearing masks cannot feel their friends respond, and it may lead to some misunderstanding of the facial expressions. They haven't uh, uh, face-to-face, uh, direct facial expression for a long time, so they don't how to resume their connection with people directly.
1: The authorities in Pakistan are warning that the unprecedented flooding across the country is only going to get worse as waters from overflowing rivers in the north head downstream. A massive relief operation is underway to rescue stranded communities. Pakistan's government is appealing for international assistance. Chris Kay, the head of the World Food Program in Pakistan, says the extreme weather will have far-reaching consequences for the country's food supply.
0: We had no spring, so there was no opportunity for effective germination of quite a lot of the crops. We had an incredibly hot period. The crops that were growing all of a sudden sort of shrank. We lost a a certain amount of the likely yield. And now whatever crops have been harvested, so much of that is being washed away.
1: The brother of Juventus football star Paul Bogba has posted videos in four languages, saying he will publish revelations about the French international player that his club, fans, and country should know about. Pogba, who says he's already the target of extortionists, issued a statement through his lawyer saying the videos were unfortunately no surprise. His brother, Matthias, said the revelations were likely to be explosive, but gave no substance to back up his assertions. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
5: Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today or guest presenter is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, uh, more on COVID-19. Health officials say they expect the daily infection figure to exceed 10,000 in the coming days after the recent rebound in case numbers. Among new anti-epidemic measures uh, testing requirements will be tightened for people attending large restaurant gatherings as well as staff working at regulated premises including hair salons and sports venues local schools are due to start the new uh, school year this week with the education secretary christine choi saying that uh, secondary schools may not be able to hold uh, full in full day that is sorry full day in person classes if the covid situation worsens Meanwhile, the Hong Kong Masters snooker tournament is set to go ahead in October, with the organisers working on a closed-loop arrangement for international players. We'll have more on that a little later in the programme. And after 9.15, we'll look at the call to plan. Ban plastic umbrella bags. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 23388 266. Joining us now on the line, we have Dr. V.J. Danisakaran, Associate Professor at the Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences at Hong Kong University's School of Public Health. Um, good morning to you. Good morning, and uh, Thanks for joining us again, uh, Professor. I mean, we're told not to just concentrate on uh, case numbers and numbers of new infections, but uh, for an overall picture, where do you think we are with the current uh, wave of COVID-19? Um, uh, thank you. So
0: um, I, I really think we are absolutely seeing rise in cases. It's really clear that the BA5 subvariant. Uh, that has been detected for the past few weeks has substantially increased in numbers compared to the previous waves. Uh, however, I actually think that the government response, uh, the immediate response of uh, the last week's responses by the government, I think um, it, it just shows a bit of a panic suddenly just because these cases are rising. Uh, it's, it's because the increase in cases were totally predicted um, over many months now. Um, and um, we, we can really see that the, that the hospitalisation versus cases, uh, not really hospitalisation, but the fatalities in critical cases, has really decoupled um, with the rise in cases. So I really think that we are not in a panicked position at the moment. I don't expect the cases to rise dramatically um, from what we've seen in February and March. And uh, a substantial proportion of population would still have uh, immunity against BA5, but it just can transport a bit more faster.
5: So the health authorities are expecting to see case numbers of more than 10,000 a day. I mean, how high do you think it could go this time?
0: Um, it's, it's really hard to say this actually. I mean, so when, um, as a comparison, if you take a 5 million population in Singapore, uh, I think they had about 15,000 to 20,000 cases. Uh, but this was after the government announced a full opening of the city with some restrictions, right, like masking and things like that. Um, So in Hong Kong, I would probably expect the numbers to range around
2: that. Yeah, I I seem to remember, uh, because I read a lot about this subject, uh, on a very bad day, Singapore had about 24,000 cases, because at the same time, Hong Kong had uh, uh, maybe 2,500, and and we were sort of, this is the end of the world, and Singapore was saying, well, that's what happens when you open up. So much more relaxed, um, their response, than ours was that
0: particular day. Uh, Absolutely. I I totally believe that the ongoing policies seem a bit illogical at the moment, um, and especially when a number of public health experts who have far greater experience than the whole country um, uh, put together and, and, you know, substantial public health expertise have continually said that uh, what we're doing now at the moment is not sustainable, uh, especially uh, looking at the elderly and uh, not vaccinated i think where i mean you know there's lots been comments about lying flat and i believe that a lot of lying flat it seems like we just need to do something but it's not really clear what the government has actually has the focus towards you know upgrading and getting us out of this i mean getting us really out of this pandemic really means taking care of the most vulnerable and the elderly um and uh, continued vaccination strategy in this group is the key uh, I've seen lots of announcements of benefits and, you know, 6,000 and 10,000 and things like that. But um, I'm yet to see a strong focus towards vaccination because it's not just not in the coming weeks or the coming months. And this is essential for five or 10 years plan, right? So this is like, I think, the ultimate that the government needs to fulfill. Mm.
2: Yes, uh, it, it puzzles me that we've, we've been having the, this virus for two and a half years, but we've had... Vaccine for one and a half years. How can there possibly still be thousands of people unvaccinated? Tens of thousands.
6: It is,
0: it is just amazing, actually, how, how the uh, public health care and the government has completely failed uh, protecting its most vulnerable population. I, I, I just can't say anything much better than that in terms of providing them a grade in terms of their performance. Um, I think the whole community essentially comes together to, to getting elderly vaccinated because this, this this not just for COVID, but for other diseases as well. People are trying to, you know, highlight the need for elderly vaccination. And that policy, I think, has, has been done reasonably well for influenza previously in Hong Kong, but it has not really been extended to other diseases. And I think the pandemic has just really starkly brought up these problems, not just in terms of vaccinating the elderly, but also the health care in Hong Kong, I think is the difference.
5: I mean, there has been a, a huge publicity drive about vaccination. I mean, we've talked about it uh, at great length on this programme. There are various government uh, announcements that we play uh, throughout the day. Um, um, other media as well have been involved in uh, getting the message out. Uh, um, so, <clears throat> I mean, um, there, there does seem to be hesitation among a certain sector of society which is puzzling to a lot of us I mean other efforts the you know uh, outreach teams have gone out to elderly care homes Uh, they've uh, you know made it possible for um, elderly people to be vaccinated in their homes so it's a little bit mystifying as to why there are still a large number of older people who, who are not fully vaccinated.
0: I mean, that's right, actually. I mean, so uh, there are a lot of studies which have been going on for the past few years, but also uh, reinvigorated in Hong Kong, I think, to better understand this phenomenon. But from a broad range of studies, it's really clear that, I mean, obviously media and uh, public messaging actually plays a major role. But uh, family doctors, nurses, uh, relatives, friends, community, I think uh, these actually play a much r- larger role. Dan actually governed advertisements that you listen through radio or you see through TV and things like that. And I think a personalized message, uh, we we missed the opportunity very beginning uh, during the pandemic when we highlighted all the ill effects, uh, potential ill effects of the vaccination rather than actually highlighting how how many lives it it could save and would save and has saved eventually.
5: Okay, um, I'm, I need to put this to you uh, both because, uh, uh, Professor, you've said on this program before that you think uh, um, many of the current anti epidemic measures are, are not necessary, no longer necessary. And uh, uh, my, my co host today, uh, guest presenter here, uh, uh, Mr. Rouse, uh, in his column in the South China. Morning Post is uh, making reference to King Canute, uh, who t- who took his uh, courtiers down to the coast to demonstrate that you couldn't hold back the waves. And uh, Mike is making a comparison between that and the and the uh, latest Omicron subvariants, the transmissibility of them. And and um, you know Mike's argument is that well, you know it's about time that we learn to live. Do, do you want to explain a bit more, Mike? Well,
2: I think all the
5: evidence is that I get from this programme.
2: Unfortunately, there's always something new by Monday. So I discuss this almost every week. And all the evidence suggests to me that this is now endemic. Um, and what? But we still have policies that pretend it isn't. Um, so we really need to go back to a, a whiteboard and start again. What should we be doing now, given that COVID is here to stay?
5: The, the, the health secretary, Lo Chung-mao, has said the, the priority is saving lives, right? Um, so the latest fatality figure was 10. Uh, <coughs> OK, that's not high compared with what it was in the early stages of right. the, the current wave. But still, sadly, 10 people passed away. Apparently, uh, uh, five of those fatalities were thought to be uh, not directly related to coronavirus, but 10 people with the virus well, died. Is- but, 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 so, that, so the question is... Um, if, if that is the priority, um, what needs to be done to protect, to save lives and protect people?
2: It is. I think one of the things you actually just highlighted, there's a difference between dying from COVID and dying with COVID. And I don't think our statistics have ever made that distinction because people said, well, there's no point doing an autopsy on someone who's 100 years old and had other, other chronic conditions and also at the end had COVID. So there comes a point where there's things you don't need to know, um, uh, realistically. But um, that's one thing. I'm worried about the other effects, uh, the long-term effects. There's a whole generation of children now who've missed far too much of their education and have lost the ability to socialise, as we learn from this uh, later Lutheran thing. I'm also detecting, I'm afraid to say hidden civil disobedience now these things about rat tests i'm quite very clear if you're demanding an rat test for attendance at an event i won't go (laughs) but i do know people who are fiddling the results of rat tests saying okay and i'd write the date in pencil and then when they ask for another one i I've just rub it out and, and change the date and pretend that that's I've done that one today. This is, this is
5: not healthy. Mm. Mm. Okay. Uh, a professor, so um, is coronavirus here to stay? And if so, how should we handle it?
0: Oh, absolutely. Right. Uh, I, I totally agree with Mike's uh, column in terms of, you know, the, we've flooded fully and we're just, you know, throwing out a little bit of water each time. I mean, I think it's in you know, a scientific terminology, this essentially comes down to the policy framework. Um, so Hong Kong uh, uses the Elimination Policy, I mean they use various different names, Zero Covid, Dynamics, Zero Covid and now apparently Precision Epidemic Control um, and, and so these all these terms ultimately aim to eradicate uh, the virus but uh, there's something gone wrong in the last one and a half years. I think a lot of uh, measures which are used now as epidemic control are essentially population control measures and without any thought of whether you know these measures would optimize the control of the viruses but ultimately it's just become like once we control population that means we can get rid of the virus as as the mainland government and the hong kong government is learning repeatedly and gaining lots of experience and this just doesn't come with the first four waves this comes with the 1997 virus this comes with the 2003 SARS virus And and so ultimately, the problem is that the government is not leveraging on on lots of public health activities, such as increasing vaccination, utilizing vaccination, um, stockpiling antivirals and advertising antivirals and then providing good support, not just, you know, not just advertising that everything's fine, but also providing guidance and good messaging. Uh, I think the government's PR has been horrible, like it's always been. And uh, the messaging that as soon as the rise of cases, you don't want to come out and threaten the population that you know you're going to get in trouble. But tell the population what what could happen, what the government is going to do to actually make the situation better. And what is the long-term plan? And this is what I think um, a lot of things have gone wrong, ultimately. So collectively thinking about this, I totally agree that we need a completely revamp of the process. I think we need a a full audit in the sense that if this was lots of money involved, proper audit, Um, and even a proper evaluation of whether we're doing the right thing, I mean, by not allowing people to exercise outside without masks, is, I think, unethical, for instance, right, Mm. Um, Mm. after two years and three years of pandemic. Mm.
5: Okay, thanks. Uh, We have a caller. Uh, Guy, good morning.
0: Good morning. Good morning. Just a quick question. Um, I'd like to ask the experts how I should persuade a fellow elderly person who's had three jabs but is reluctant to get a fourth because she believes that it's pointless, that neither of the two vaccines available will protect her against either of the Omicron variants. Uh, How do I do that? Mm.
2: Mm. Well, uh, let me jump in before the professor (laughs) guy. (laughs) Uh, The professor's champing at the bit there. (laughs) Vaccination, I've had four. Uh, They won't stop you getting uh, the virus but they will make the chance of you dying infinitely smaller and also very much smaller of suffering seriously. So it, it right. won't stop you getting uh, the, the
5: disease, uh,
0: how, but
5: it will reduce the impact. How, how much of a difference does the fourth jab make? Uh, Professor Danis
0: um, uh, I'll just add to that in the sense that we know that uh, three vaccine shots actually does, reduces severe disease dramatically, but you can still have mild to moderate disease, and uh, which is not quite comfortable at all. So that's in addition to you know vaccination would protect transmission at the short scale, it would also also uh, give you a better protection, just like what Mike had just described, a much 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 better protection um, against uh, infection. Um, And so it's good for uh, if you are going to get repeatedly exposed if you're travelling, if you're elderly, and so it's highly recommended. And you have really good transmission from even infection for the first few weeks. So um, these are the following reasons. There's probably many more as well. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Um, Are you recommending a fourth or sticking with the third? Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, I would recommend, depending on the numbers of months it's been since the person has got vaccinated, um, and uh, if it's been more than six months, and if the elderly is about 65, for instance, I think they are recommended to get a fourth shot. And uh, right. I, would, I would personally recommend the person as well. Okay. The problem is that the, my chances of my dying from trying to persuade my wife to get the shot <laughs> are, are increased. Um, for more, I raise the
6: question.
5: Okay, all right. Okay, thanks very much for that uh, call there, Guy. Actually, um, just now we had another caller said, just left a message, said, why does the government have no KPI on the vaccination rate? Well, interesting question. I don't know, maybe they do.
2: I don't think they do. Okay. It's it's just APIs,
5: persuasion. Right, right. Um, A couple of emails here as well from listeners. Uh, Alan says, uh, the concern should be. How many of those in hospitals are unvaccinated? No breakdown is given by government and there is more scaremongering than common sense. If daily infections are mainly vaccinated and are not severe, there is no problem. And Alonzo writes, uh, a friend of mine recently reported her positive rat test to the government. She was fully vaccinated, at least three shots, and was allowed to self isolate at home and is now fine. Government uh, gave her the antiviral tablet, uh, Molnupiravir. What would your experts recommend? Sorry, would your experts recommend this medicine? If so, why is it only available if you report your case to government? Should it be made readily available in pharmacies? to the public, including the thousands who aren't reporting their positive cases. Thank you. That from Alonzo. Um, Professor Molnir
6: uh, that's,
0: that's a good question. I mean, I mean, these antivirals have been shown to have good acting uh, measures, especially when, when you get disease and it prevents getting severe disease. Um, so, yes, uh, if you are actually um, uh, feeling ill, um, I, would, I would recommend taking the infection. If you have a, uh, have a real infection and you can measure them using RIT just as well, so go ahead and, and, and follow up the government's uh, doctor's advice and completing um, your course. But if you don't have a, a severe illness and you feel fine, I don't think you need to take an antibiotic at all.
2: Okay. I think my experience is exactly the same as as that message. I felt very slightly under the weather. I tested. I was positive. I phoned up, I went to the clinic and got the antivirals. I was right again the same day, actually, in terms of my feeling. Um, So I was sort of felt poorly for a couple of hours and then it's gone. And I tested negative on days five, six and seven. So I was alone at home.
5: Good. Okay, thanks. Uh, as mentioned earlier, we're going to change our uh, our focus slightly now because we're going to look ahead to the Hong Kong Masters snooker tournament which is uh, set to go ahead in October. Um, The organizers have been working on a a closed loop arrangement for the international players uh, coming to town, which will include uh, quite a star lineup. Uh, The current world champion, Ronnie O'Sullivan, and former world champions, Mark Selby, Judd Trump. Uh, They'll be joining um, uh, local stars like uh, Marco Fu and, and also... Um, our sort of th- uh, three-time uh, women's uh, snooker uh, world champion as well. Um, we're joined on the line now by uh, Vincent Law, chairman of the Hong Kong Billiard Sports Control Council. Uh, good morning to you. Good
3: morning. Hi. Thanks, thanks very
5: much for joining us. Um, so um, how are you doing with these uh, arrangements for the tournament? Uh, all, all the details worked out yet?
3: Uh, you can imagine it's very difficult uh, in these circumstances to um, hold a big-scale big, e- big scale event like this. Uh, but of course, we are working hard. Uh, as you said, um, it looks like the closed loop is the only possible way for us to bring in the overseas players. So now we are uh, working out the exact details with the government, in particularly the uh, Department of Health. Oh. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, we are working full steam. And let's hope... Uh, well, of course, we hope in October there will be no quarantine at all, right? Then it will solve the problem. But uh, given the rising number of cases, we think it is unlikely.
5: Yeah, yes. I guess you have to work on the on the basis that there that there may still be quarantine. So, of course, you have to uh, prepare for that. I mean, it's a three day. A tournament between October the 6th and the 9th so, um, so the players coming from overseas are, are they sort of prepared to accept the limitations on their movement and the and the, the bubble arrangement the closed loop
3: well they are so far the answers we got now are that they are willing to, to, to do it they, they have accepted but of course it takes us time and effort to explain to them what it is about, uh, why we will have to do it. Because as you can imagine, now they are travelling and living freely in, uh, in the UK and, and Europe. So uh, now they, they come to Hong Kong and they have to go through it. It takes us time to, to explain to this why why, yeah. why it is necessary.
2: Mr. Mr. Law, good morning. Uh, full marks for, for trying to make the event come off. I watch quite a bit of snooker on TV, um, the oh, Crucible, and uh, uh, it's the, I, watch, I think I've watched Ronnie win uh, the okay. world championship. It's a terrific sport, actually, for, for viewers um, as well. Uh, how are they going to handle Are they going to be testing on arrival?
3: to be tested before they bought the plane, right. like any travellers who come to Hong Kong now. Yep. And when they arrive, they will be tested again. And in fact, I think uh, the government wants them to be tested every day while they are in Hong Kong.
2: PCR so, or RAT? Uh, I,
3: I think it's PCR.
2: Right. Because I asked the rugby people the yes. uh, same question. Um, what happens if they test positive on arrival? And the answer is they'll be in self-isolation in the hotel. So presumably that will be something similar for these stars?
3: Well, uh, uh, yes, that's, that's what I think. That's why we are also working on backup plan. So in case uh, uh, one of them arrived in Hong Kong and then gets positive, we may want to bring in a, a backup player as soon as we can so that we will, we will still be able to uh, have the full tournament. But, but again, we are still working out the details. Uh, I can imagine in rugby, it's easier, right? They have a big team, so if one or two uh, 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 get uh, get tested positive, they can still get the substitutes. Right. But in soccer, right, all of them, we only have big players. All of them mm. are stars, mm. and people buy tickets to, to see them. Uh, so it's a big bit of a challenge.
2: What's going to happen to the audience?
3: Well, the audience, they will just uh, be the, uh, uh, the same as going to a concert. I'm not too worried about the audience because now people can still go to see the concert. Right. Of course, they have to put on a the mask. They cannot eat or drink. They have to wear um, a mask,
2: can't eat and drink. What about, in, but there's no interaction with the players. I mean, at the Crucible, when Ronnie won, people were rushing forward. They wanted autographs. They wanted to shake hands and everything. I Presumably, all well, that will have to go. Well,
3: it's a bit difficult in, in our arena because it is the Hong Kong Coliseum. So you can imagine the uh, the, the arena is, is pretty big in, in terms of area. So yeah. the audience will not be able to reach out to the to the players easily. But still, we, we hope we can organize some sort of like autograph sessions uh, um, uh, for maybe a selected number of, uh, uh, of of the public. But again, because of the of the close loop arrangement, um, we, we still have to work out the leaders of the government. Mm-hmm. But I do hope the, the public can have some. Interaction with
5: the players. Mm. What, what, what will the arrangement be for the uh, for the local players? Uh, you know, I mentioned before the th- three time women's world champion on Yi, uh, another favorite uh, Marco Fu. Well, I mean, will they be subject to similar restrictions as the overseas players during yes, the tournament? Uh, yeah.
3: uh, indeed, because uh, uh, they will be playing with some of the um, overseas players, so they also have to enter into the close groups uh, when the tournament starts. And in fact, some of the officials, like the referees uh, and, and, of course, just a small number of people also have to go into the this bubble. Um, that's why it is not easy to organize uh, right. this event.
2: Same for the rugby. The local well, rugby team. Rugby is
3: even, I'm sure, it's even more difficult. <laughs> but but, but uh, Well, I, I'm sure we're all working hard. We want to achieve uh, 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 something. We want to reopen Hong Kong. And that's what we can do at this. Difficult circumstances.
5: Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I read somewhere that uh, the capacity will be 8,000 spectators, which uh, and, and that could make it uh, the biggest attendance in in the world for a snooker event.
3: Yes, yes. Yeah. If we have a sold-out day, it will be around 8,000 to 8,500 people in, in the arena. Yeah. And I think normally when you go to the, the Crucible or some bigger arenas in in, in, in the UK. You're only looking at one to 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, we, we are quite ambitious. We, we want to uh, break some records in, right. in right. Will it
2: Will it be televised? Okay. Yes. And the pictures will go all over the world?
5: Yeah. Yes. Great, great. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Well, thanks very much for joining us uh, on the programme. That was uh, Vincent Law, chairman of the Hong Kong uh, Billiard Sports Control Council. And thanks very much to uh, Dr. Uh, Vijay dennis associate professor at the Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences at uh, Hong Kong U. And we're going to take a short break for the news summary. We'll be back at three minutes past. Uh, the weather is currently 29 degrees Celsius, 80% humidity. The very hot weather warning is still in effect. And me, Jim Gould. And this morning, we're having some more uh, COVID-19 updates. Uh, We're joined now by Wendy Lai, who's uh, Executive Vice Chairman of the Hong Kong Exhibition and Convention Industry Association. Still with us is uh, uh, Professor uh, Vijay Danisakaran from uh, Hong Kong News School of Public Health. Um, uh, Wendy Lai, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Um, So there was, uh, I guess, some positive news for your industry um, just the other day. So now anybody coming to attend uh, an exhibition uh, here uh, or a convention will be able to do so after their three days uh, quarantine. Um, Can can you just update us on the situation there? Um, Yes. Of course, we
4: welcome this new policy and the relaxed policy from the government. Um, actually, we welcome any move towards a full opening of Hong Kong. Yeah, the recent relaxation is certainly a step in the right direction. Um, however, we would say that it it won't be helping much. Um, because under the current policy, although international business travelers can now visit trade shows on their fourth day in Hong Kong with an amber code. We're still talking about three days of mandatory hotel quarantine. Mm-hmm. And we know that very few overseas exhibitors and visitors would be willing to spend money and time to have themselves locked in a hotel room for three days. So um, until the authorities are, welcome, are ready to change the policy and remove the mandatory quarantine restrictions, it will not have a significant impact on our industry, Mm. which is the convention and exhibition
2: industry. Ms. Lai, whenever an exhibition uh, moves, there's a risk that it will move forever.
4: Correct, correct. And um, we know that a couple of them (coughs) have moved already. So if we look at the uh, the current situation, um, very, very recently... Now we remember Hong Kong announced a relaxed 3 plus 4 model on the 8th of August, right? Yeah. And then a few days later, a leading international technology conference, which was originally scheduled for 2023, announced the decision to defer the event to 2024. Yes. So y- y- it, it's, a, it's a fact that, you know, 3 plus 4 model, although relaxed, it still isn't good enough for international events which need right. to bring in participants from all over the world.
2: You're talking about RISE, I think, the, yes, that yes. particular one. Well, the, <laughs> the problem for me with that decision, and I refer to it in my column today in the South China Morning Post, it implied that the organisers had no confidence that Hong Kong would be fully open by March next year, <laughs> that, which I frankly found scary. Um, I suppose, speaking on behalf of the organisers of that conference, um, you've got to plan well in advance, and you can't leave it to the last minute, otherwise people won't mark their diary.
7: Exactly,
4: exactly. Now, international trade event organisers, they don't like uncertainties. They simply can't plan and manage an event with this kind of critical uncertainties like travel and quarantine restrictions. We need to understand event organizers have to pour in huge amount of investment into organizing exhibitions and to bring in participants from all over the world. So once an event organizer confirmed an event location and date line, millions or even tens of millions of dollars have to put into marketing the event to bring in participants. So if Hong Kong can't offer this kind of certainty to let international travelers travel freely in and out without restrictions and hassles, they will go somewhere else. And this is exactly what's happening. And also we need to understand international trade exhibitions need 12 to 18 months to plan. If we can't have a border opening roadmap fast enough to give certainties and confidence to these event organisers, we will continue to lose international trade exhibitions. And of course it will erode the important position of Hong Kong being the trade fair capital of Asia.
5: So would you want to see some sort of timetable for opening up?
4: now um i think the minimum minimum now um hong kong has relaxed the border restrictions a bit so we are now talking about three plus four right so we also see um, some important exhibitions moved out of hong kong into other asian countries over the past uh, year so i've talked to um, an organizer which did so so, so my question was pretty simple, you know um, three plus four. Now we, we have already a relaxed policy. So are, are you going to consider bring back the show to Hong Kong? And the answer was straight No. And only until we see a zero plus seven or even a zero plus three model, then they will, that they will continue, uh, that they will consider bringing the shows back. To Hong Kong, so the zero-day mandatory quarantine is essentially the most basic condition for the sector to return. And uh, our uh, new Secretary for Health, Dr. Low, you know, he also mentioned um, conditional quarantine-free travel could be allowed by November, in time for a global banker summit to be held in mm-hmm. Hong Kong. We believe the government knows exactly what are the important steps that that we need to take to bring back international business travelers. But we hope that we can take those steps sooner and before November. You know, September, October, November used to be important international trade show season of Hong Kong. So we would very, very much like to see we can take a further step to look at zero-day mandatory quarantine as a short-term next step before november so that we can welcome back our, our international travelers and reboot our industry and um, economy
2: okay. what happens if these people are given special treatment rather than a general opening up like with jamie demon i mean that's the sort of level of person that you're trying to attract
4: yeah, yeah, we, we heard about that. But um, given the current COVID situation, as we noted, import cases constitute to around, what, 2 to 3% of our total number of COVID cases every day. And with the Amber code scheme, and that the international travelers would still be subject to restrictions in their activities in Hong Kong. What we would like to suggest is that let's look at making zero-day mandatory quarantine a short-term next step.
5: Okay, okay. Professor Dennis Sakharan, hello. That's good, great, good, thanks. Still with us. So the scenario that Wendy Lai is describing, I mean, from a public health point of view, um, is that feasible in terms of uh, protecting the public?
0: Um, um, Certainly. um, I I really think that um, the quarantine of international travelers could be completely removed. Um, And uh, the government plan of first uh, doing the bankers in November, I I really uh, understand uh, where Wendy is coming from in the sense that uh, try and try it now. Open it Mm -hmm. first and see if things are working properly before you let lots of people in. Uh, But again, on on another aspect, in terms of public health perspective, I think uh, there's no reason why we should actually have any quarantine for travelers um, since March, April, I think. Um, And uh, we also have other facilities, not just you know sticking with isolating people, but you know um, um, using uh, RAT tests, for example, for international travelers. Um, And and then if you if you know if you rat negative, just go out. It, It doesn't matter. That's exactly what everybody does in the city. Our children. Uh, office-goers, um, uh, doctors as well. So I really think that the city should be opened quite now. Another concern I have is if we, if we are planning to open up right at the time of seasonal influenza and all other viruses, especially in the winter season, um, I'm a bit cautious about that, actually, because if you're going to contain a zero COVID, then keep our immunity levels quite low. Opening up the, the, just before that, I think, is a bit ominous to me. Um, so the idea that opening now and see
5: how things work out, I think, is a much better idea. Okay. Our number is two double three double eight two double six. We have a caller, James. Good morning.
6: Good morning, Guy. Uh, um,
5: sorry, sorry. This is Guy. Sorry, is this Guy? James.
6: This is James. I'm um, I beg you, good you, morning, guys. I beg you. I beg your Pardon. In, yeah, in yeah. A go ahead. Way. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Now I have um, two questions. I guess one for your experts there, and one for Mike. Uh, the first one is to do with the uh, zero policy, and whether Hong Kong as a SAR under one country two system should be maintaining uh, that, even though that is the policy from the mainland, Uh, My second question is to Mike, uh, given uh, his experience uh, within the civil service and the administration in in Hong Kong, um, regarding the relationship between the hospital authority, uh, the health department, and the health bureau. Are they all working together, or is there a better way that they could be working together?
5: Thank you. Hmm. Do you want to go first? No, I think we should let the professor go first. So, professor, obviously it's a matter of policy. It's it's uh, it's uh, a government policy. I mean, a priority is getting the the border with the mainland reopened. Does that mean that Hong Kong has to follow the same policy as uh, mainland China?
0: I mean, um, a really good question. I I, I really think that um, Hong Kong need not maintain a zero policy. And we should entirely move to a mitigation policy by just, you know, taking care of the healthcare system where all resources are put in to build better healthcare systems, better air quality and better residential qualities and things like that. Uh, There's absolutely no reason, um, even now we cannot open mainland, right, because we have virus circulation. And I would say that it's impossible to take us back to perfect zero COVID uh, anytime in the next few years. So I think it's a futile task to try to open up the mainland borders by going back to zero COVID. Thanks.
5: Okay, okay. Thank I
2: think you. I agree with uh, with the professor. But the, the point here is that President Xi was here just uh, a few weeks ago and he emphasized that Hong Kong was free to go its own way. It, it, his whole point was high degree of autonomy for you suits us, the mainland. So, so carry on. So I, I think we are free. But I I think the individuals concerned who are making the policy uh, don't want to step out of line. So I don't think it's a constitutional problem. I think it's a personal problem. Mm. Um, From what I know, I suspect all of the medical people are working pretty much in harmony, but they're being overcautious. They're ignoring all the other consequences of of their decisions. They're taking it purely from a health point of view, which is understandable, but it's up to the chief executive to take advice from all the people affected by these decisions and come up
5: with a balanced position. Mm -hmm. Uh, James, do you want to come back at all? Oh,
6: no, I I appreciate those uh, those opinions. It it just seems that... um, (laughs) I think we're all frustrated after these several years mm. um that it seems to be going around in circles and the number of cases are on the rise again, mm. and um, we haven't had major uh public holidays recently mm. uh, to sort of mm, excuse the the, the 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 increase in cases mm. Mm. um So I just wonder if it's going to
5: keep going around like this. Okay. all right. Well, thanks very much uh, for your call there. Um, Just uh, um, one more for uh, Wendy Lye. Um, Wendy Lai still with us? Yes, I'm still okay. Here. Okay. Good. Uh, thanks. Uh, you were explaining before how it takes a, a lot of time to organise an international trade fair. If we get to the stage where there is no more quarantine and there's free international movement, um, how long do you think it would take for the industry to recover to uh, the, the, the you know the situation it was before the pandemic? Uh, I
4: think it would take probably 12 to 24 months. Um, the, the situation is now uh, definitely not better than a year before. So a, a year ago, we may be hoping to see resumption of the exhibition sector, but at this stage, it would be more realistic to look at rebuilding the sector. So it's not as simple and straightforward like to flip the switch from off to on and the sector will, will come back. You know, the, the quarantine-free border opening roadmap is certainly the most important first step. But even when we see uh, such a roadmap, when we open the border, there are still so many hurdles that we need to jump through. We need to pitch and convince those international exhibitions that have moved out of Hong Kong to come back. You know, we need to release venue space back to the market. We have two major exhibition venues in Hong Kong, and one of them is now a COVID treatment facility. Mm. And over the past 2.5 years, when many events were canceled or suspended, we faced serious talent loss. So some of these professionals uh, have already changed industry. So for the sector to recover, we need to invite them back, or we need to train a new batch of people, which takes time and investment. And then when events can resume, exhibition organizers probably need to double or even triple their marketing spend in order to promote the event to international markets. Because after all, the last edition of the same trade show in Hong Kong was probably like three years ago, or even four years ago. So extra efforts would be needed to drive international participation. And of course, ideally, who wants to pitch new international events to Hong Kong, and we need a very good Hong Kong story to tell. So the list could go on and on. So it, it won't be a very fast recovery, I would say. It would probably take uh, 12 to 40 months uh, to 24 months. So we really need to see a quarantine-free opening roadmap very, very soon.
5: Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the program this morning. Uh, that was Wendy Lai, Executive Vice-Chairman of the Hong Kong Exhibition and Convention Industry Association. And thanks very much to Dr. VJ Danisakaran, Associate Professor at the Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences at uh, Hong Kong University's uh, School of public health. Um, another email here from listener Karen. I, I must say, um, we do try to read out all of the emails that we receive and we don't, re- obviously we're aware of the need for balance if possible. Pretty much all of the emails we get on this subject are all very critical of the anti-pandemic measures. Uh, and this one from Karen is uh, fairly typical. Uh, it says, that, um, the problem with these policies, apart from the fact that they're unscientific and damaging, is that It uh, regulates and destroys everything that brings uh, hope and joy in life. Hong Kong has become a miserable place to live. And here we are again, possibly heading towards the regulation of anything that brings joy. Ongoing past and still possible future uh, threats are holidays, after-school activities, sports, beaches, barbecue pits, playgrounds, family gatherings, live music, bars, eating out, all have been subject to some form of regulation, either in the past, ongoing or by future threat, just miserable?
2: I have to say that's that's totally correct, Mm. that the two things that scare me the most is we've removed hope,
5: Mm.
2: and number two, lead times. Mm. Even if we open, or we say we're open, will people have confidence that Mm. in six months' time we we won't go back? Mm. I, I don't think they will, and that's why Wendy's Estimate of twelve to twenty-four months, which is already alarming, is optimistic Mm. to get these people back.
5: Okay, okay, thanks for that, Mike. I mean, I I would stress again, of course, that the the government's position is that uh, we've got to control the pandemic, got to protect people, and uh, we've got to save lives. But obviously, there will be debate about uh, how that is achieved. Um, For the last uh, few minutes of this morning's program, we're going to turn our attention to a different topic. and uh, that is, um, well, you know when you go to the supermarket, a shopping mall, or banks and things like that, uh, and it's been raining, and your umbrella's wet, and, uh, and there's somebody there asking you to put it inside a, a, a bag to stop the floor uh, becoming a slippy. So, um, there's... Uh, one of our environmental groups, uh, this one is Green as Action, is actually calling on the government to, to ban the use of these uh, plastic umbrella bags. Uh, it carried out a survey. So we went to more than 180 bank branches and restaurants on rainy days, and it found that uh, most of the banks and about half of the restaurants uh, were providing these uh, disposable bags to customers. And we're joined on the line. By Beatrice Hsu, who's a senior officer in public affairs with Greeners Action. Good morning to you. Good morning. So how much of a problem is this and what, how damaging is it to the environment? I mean, we're talking about a lot of bags being given out, aren't we?
7: Um, First of all, uh, thank you for inviting me uh, to join uh, the program today. Um, Let me briefly introduce about our work on umbrella bags. Actually, we started um, a similar survey starting from uh, 2017. We actually conducted a survey and found that um, in the rainy seasons that actually Hong Kong people are using 14 million um, umbrella bags. So, um... That's why we've been keep um, concerning about the problem with the umbrella bag, and then uh, this time we have uh, conducted um, this survey, and uh, it's actually our first, first survey on banks and restaurants, and and to see that um, if the problem is getting more serious, and honestly, if um, if you just uh, t- uh, go out for. Rainy, days, and you found that there have been a lot of umbrella bags being disposed in the rubbish bin, and so it is creating a problem to our landfill. Hello? Hello? Yes, uh, sorry, sorry, yes
5: yeah, I, thought, I thought we'd lost you momentarily. Yeah. Uh, Monsieur, good morning. Um,
7: yes, good morning.
5: I, I
2: understand the point about these bags, and I always try to reuse mine. Uh, mm-hmm. I take the first one, and then I try and keep it. For a few days until it falls apart frankly so mm-hmm. yeah I appreciate it's a problem but from the point of view of the operator of a of a venue what what's the alternative for making sure the floor doesn't get wet
7: actually we have uh, observed um, some of the bangs and the restaurants, and we found that actually they have applied some other um, options, for example, like carbonates or dryers, or they have kind of uh, beams for the umbrellas. So uh, that means that they have other alternatives uh, rather than using umbrella bags. And we see that um, the, the materials on, on the floor, the floor tiles, are actually um, not that slippery, I may say. So uh, I don't see that they're important, or it's important, or it's necessary for them to use the umbrella bags.
2: But if you put it into a bin together with everyone else's umbrella, who came into the bank, you've then got to find your umbrella when you go out again, haven't you?
7: Uh, I think it depends. Uh, we are not saying that um, there are only one options for the uh, restaurants or banks. For example, maybe they can use cabinets and. When we observe the restaurants and banks, actually they're not that um, they're not that big. So um, I don't think that it's necessary for them to um, use um, the uh, umbrella bags, or they have other options to replace umbrella bags. I mean.
5: So are, are there special floor coverings that uh, that these places can use?
7: Like uh, non-slip, have- non-slip
5: floor coverings.
7: Well, I'm not the expert on mm. on uh, you know the, the construction mm. stuff, but mm. I can say that uh, when I just observe the uh, restaurants and banks, and I realize that some of them are using probably wooden tiles or uh, some tiles that coating the uh, kind of materials for non slippery. Mm. So uh, it, for me, that when I just go out on rainy days, I don't see that the floor is actually that slippery.
2: Because I imagine there would be an insurance angle, won't there? for some mm-hmm. venues. If someone's, if, I, if I slip down the bank mm-hmm. and there wasn't a, a proper way to store my umbrella and the floor was wet, mm-hmm. then um, I, customers might sue the bank.
7: Yes. The, well, of, of course, we understand about this concern. And uh, that's why we've been keep repeating that there have many options to, uh, to actually for them to uh, avoid the floor getting slippery. And in fact, uh, when we just observe some of the banks, for example, like DOCs, the branches, and we realize that uh, they have an over-usage of uh, plastic bags, for example, like in one of our branches that we've been to, there are four exits. And in every exit, they apply one uh, umbrella bag machine. Um, so I don't think it's, it is that necessary. And for some of the branches, apart from the, from the ground floor level, And they have one umbrella bag um, machine every single floor. So that's why the question I'm asking is whether it is necessary to apply that much of um, umbrella bags. Mm.
5: And you want these umbrella bags to be banned. I mean, have you made an approach to the government?
7: Uh, We actually, uh, we urge the government to stop these kind of uh, single-use plastics Mm. um, not later than 2025. Mm.
2: So this is—that's quite a general thing, isn't it? It's uh, fast food, and f- knives, forks, and spoons, uh, and and things like that as well.
7: Actually, I think it's not only greenest action. I think uh, many of the environmental groups
1: yeah. in Hong
7: Kong are actually urging for banning the single-use plastics for many years and that's we've been keep waiting for it until um, the Council of uh, Sustainable Development actually their, their public engagement uh, report was released in April and they also support that the um, umbrella bags should be banned um, in, in the upcoming years. So uh, the um, government in the end, they finally would like to draft and they would like to legislate on uh, banning the uh, single-use plastics. We are happy to hear that, but the problem is we can't see a timetable now, so that's why our, our stance is to urge the government to ban the uh, single-use plastics, including umbrella bags, not mm. later than 2025. Mm.
5: Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, That was Beatrice Hsu, Senior uh, Officer of uh, Public Affairs with uh, Greeners Action. Um, Thanks very much to our our listeners, uh, everybody who wrote in, and thank you to you, Mike.
2: I have a lot of fun with this subject. Good,
5: Okay, We look forward to seeing you uh, next Monday. Um, A quick look at the weather before we go to the news summary and morning brew. So, it's going to be uh, mainly cloudy with a few showers, isolated thunderstorms, uh, very hot uh, with sunny intervals in the afternoon, uh, top temperature around 33 degrees. The outlook, sunny intervals and a few showers and thunderstorms in the next couple of days. Currently 30 degrees, humidity 79%, very hot weather warning in effect.
3: I'm Dr. Emma Nam. The pandemic is surging with more contagious mutant stress. The elderly are at the highest risk if a new wave comes. Scientific data shows that those with stable health can receive COVID-19 vaccines. Take your elderly relatives to get the jab at community vaccination centres, designated general outpatient clinics, elderly health centres, private clinics or hospital COVID-19 vaccination stations or opt for the home vaccination service.
5: The news summary with Andrew Shirovsky.
1: Thank you, Jim. The daily tally of new COVID cases is approaching the 10,000 mark with Hong Kong reporting just under 9,500 local cases and about 210 imported cases. That's a jump of more than 1,200 cases from Saturday's total. Dr. Chuan Shuk from the Center for Health Protection says the more transmissible Omicron subvariants BA.4 and BA.5 account for about 50% of recent cases. Researchers from the University of Hong Kong have called for a standardized big data system to monitor superbug infections here. Their study found that one of the common superbugs found in Hong Kong, known as...